The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Some believe that these last two relationships were the catalyst for Gary's murder spree. It's not entirely clear what finally set him off that last puzzle piece that fell into place. But I can assure you Gary Ridgway was and is a monster. He's a true boogeyman. Without mercy, Gary's kill count is enormous. What are presumed to be 90-plus victims are attributed to Gary. The bodies of so many women scattered around the Green River, Seattle-Tacoma International Airport area. In Seattle this morning, police are hunting a mass murderer believed to have killed as many as 21 prostitutes in the last 22 months. David Burrington reports. Been called the Green River Killer ever since the first bodies, five of them, were pulled from this river. Since then, seven more bodies have been discovered nearby, all those of young prostitutes, according to police. And the number of missing increases steadily. Two were added to the list this week. All the victims worked this strip near the Seattle airport, crammed with hotels, motels, and strip joints. Angry residents are demanding police do more to stop the killings. One young prostitute who operates along the strip said she's terrified every time she's picked up. I don't know, I'm just, I guess I'm just lucky that I never came across that certain freak. Police say the victims are similar, runaways, very young, disturbed. Most were strangled, their bodies left nude. A police task force has little hard evidence, but it thinks a single psychopathic killer is responsible. However, it would be illogical and improper from an investigative perspective to become that tunnel vision and exclude the possibility of any copycat crimes or the possibility of a multiple suspect. Police suspect other prostitutes might be able to provide leads, but because of their profession, they've been uncooperative. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Modus operandi was simple. He'd pick up sex workers, drive them to the woods or his home, and during sexual intercourse, strangle them to death. At first, he would place them in a rear naked choke and squeeze the life from them with his bare arms. Gary once used this choke on his second wife, Marcia. He started choking her, 
second-guessed the decision as she started to pass out, and then ran off. He then returned pretending to be her rescuer. Marcia was understandably baffled by this, but she didn't want to press the issue. Gary was dim-witted enough to think he had gotten away with the incident without her knowing. The rear naked choke method worked for a time. Eventually, the signs of the fighting woman began to become a problem. He'd come into work with bruises, black eyes, scratches, little fingernails stuck in his arm that he missed. It was especially bad for him to have any marks on his face. Gary began to use ligature, sometimes rope, sometimes improvised. Now, I think it's important to note the enormity of Gary's murders. It seems that some discount these killings because women who work the sex trade are treated as lesser people in our society, especially during their time. They were considered lesser victims, invisible victims. These were all women with histories. They were infants that grew into children who grew into teenagers, and, if the Green River Killer didn't get to them first, grew into women. They had hopes and dreams, fears, desires. Behind their job, they were just like the rest of us. They were people. And Gary Ridgway thought that he was doing the world a favor by murdering them. Or, at least he convinced himself of this. It's unclear when it happened, as he seemed to like them well enough during his stint in the Navy. But Gary Ridgway hated sex workers. At least that's what he would go on to claim. With that in mind, I firmly believe that Gary viewed sex workers as lesser humans. Tools to be used and discarded. That is when he could commit to discard them. Gary engaged in necrophilia, something that is often underreported, perhaps because it's awful to discuss. Not exactly water cooler talk. Yes, Gary continued to have sex with the women long after they were dead. He continued until they became too stiff, the smell overpowering. Even then, he might get tempted. So, as to not fall into this temptation, Gary would bury a corpse when the smell became too strong. Gary kept these women in clusters. Sometimes he'd bring dates out near these clusters to have sex near them because it turned him on, knowing the dead bodies were nearby. Gary was able to pick out the faint smell of rotting bodies. And whenever he lay on top of a date, the woman none the wiser, he'd breathe in deep, knowing he was smelling his handiwork. Most of these bodies were placed in or near Green River, so the media began calling Gary the Green River Killer. In response to this, Gary began placing the bodies in other locations. Gary obsessed over these deceased women. He'd do ritualistic things to their bodies, posing them, placing objects like fruit or knickknacks around or in their corpse. At night, the nightmares came. It wasn't that he was haunted with guilt. No, in these dreams, people were stealing his corpses, November 1982. Rebecca, a sex worker, is walking home. The chill in the air didn't bother her, but the rain was too much. Rebecca's low on cash. But she's not desperate enough to stand out there cold and soaked. So she's headed back to her home where she can get out of her wet clothes and get warm. For now, Rebecca's trying to ignore the fact that every layer of her clothes are soaked. That she feels cold all the way through to her bones. When the truck pulls up, the man reaches across the truck, manually rolls down the window. Before she can even ask, he has his wallet out. He's blocking his name with his finger, but she can tell he isn't a cop. He's got a picture of his kid next to him. Cute. When she looks up at him, she sees he has a couple deep scratches on his face. 
Maybe his wife isn't too happy with his habit. They agree on $20 and a ride back to her place. Rebecca starts to get in the truck. There's toys in the front seat. Oh, sorry, the man says and tosses the toys in the back seat. There's something artificial about this. His movements. And something else Rebecca can't place. She senses from this man. Something... Off. It's like everything he's done since he pulled up felt practiced. Robotic. Why would he need to stage these things? Is he nervous? We can go to my place. The man breaks her train of thought. She sat in the front seat of the truck. She tells him that she knows a place nearby. It's her trailer park. Rebecca feels safe there. The man seems put off. Rebecca assures him it will be private. The man nods once and they drive off. By the time they get to the trailer park, the rain has stopped. The man speaks up. He's rubbing his temples. I don't want to go to any trailer. I have blankets. Is there a trail nearby? Rebecca's heart starts racing. Something inside her tells her to put a stop to this now. To run. But she tells herself it will be over soon. She'll be back indoors. Once they find a good spot, the man flattens the blanket on the ground. He seems cagey now. Wound up. And before she can react, he snaps towards her. His arms almost seem to grow in size. Gary can't believe that he has been taken out of his element with this girl. This whore. He can feel the anger rising in his chest. He wraps the arms around Rebecca's waist, is trying to take her to the ground, but she's fighting. Fighting harder than anyone Gary has fought yet. In her panic, Rebecca doesn't think to scream, but when her head clears some, she lets one out now. It's loud, it's piercing, and Gary is afraid someone heard. His fear turns to anger. His face turns a bright red. He releases his grip around her body and grabs her by the face. He's covering her mouth with one hand, and in a quick movement wraps his arm around her neck in a rear naked choke. He's got her now. But no, Rebecca is not done fighting. If Gary is mad, Rebecca is furious. She thinks to herself, No, this is not my time. This man is not going to kill me. Gary has his choke in, but not in his usual full mount position. Rebecca is fighting too hard. She won't allow herself to be pinned to the ground by Gary's knees. He realizes he was hasty. Gary didn't wait for the right opportunity to strike. And besides, Rebecca is strong. Both standing, Rebecca realizes this is her last chance. She feels the grip around her neck and she can't take in air. She plants both feet hard into the earth. With all of her strength, the type of superhuman adrenaline strength hidden away for lifting sharks off of children, Rebecca rears forward, then all at once slams head back into Gary's face, planted dead center. For Gary, the pain is immediate. His teeth cut into his lips. His nose feels shattered. A burst of vibrating stars in his vision fade into night as he falls back. As Gary falls backwards, his head slams hard into a tree. Rebecca sits stunned, watching on. The man is laying crane-necked against the tree, his face covered in blood. He's staring at, no, through her. It's a blank expression. This is her chance. She has to run. And now, outside of her body, looking on, Rebecca can feel the movement of her feet hitting the ground, the heartbeat pounding in her ears, the whole run she wants to run back, to see if he's there, gaining, getting closer with each stride. She makes it to the first trailer, doesn't stop once. She's pounding on the door, hard. Is he there, behind her? 
Her hand is not connecting with the door anymore. Why? Her throat hurts. She's barely conscious. The door opens. Rebecca can only croak out three words. Please help me. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery. One that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener, check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. 
This is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. Rebecca doesn't tell the police about her encounter until two years had passed. The police never treated her well, and she was involved in drugs and a sex worker. Eventually speaks up. This helps the police establish an M.O. for Gary Ridgway. At least 15 others on the street she was picked up from didn't escape him. This was along Pacific Highway South between South 188th Street and his house at 218th. If you were walking that particular stretch of road during that period, your odds of surviving weren't good. In this country, in Washington state, still another victim has been identified in the nation's longest list of unsolved murders, the Green River Killings. 37 women have died, nine missing, all thought to be victims of the same killer. John Sandifer of KING-TV in Seattle has the latest. It was a familiar routine for the Green River Task Force, sifting through any remaining evidence at a site where someone, in this case three young boys, had stumbled across human remains. After the passage of three years, they would not find much more than a skeleton. Late Monday, the remains would be identified as those of 17-year-old Cindy Ann Smith, last seen in March 1984, hitchhiking from her mother's home to that of her sister in Seattle. She is victim number 37. Cindy disappeared from a strip of highway south of Seattle where no fewer than 18 other young women, mostly prostitutes, dropped out of sight beginning in the summer of 1982. The first grisly discoveries of their bodies was along the picturesque Green River, hence the name that has come to represent untold horror to many in the Northwest. The Green River murders have included victims ranging in age from 16 through 36. Most of their bodies have been recovered in wilderness dumping grounds in groups of two, three, and up to seven. The Green River Task Force has employed up to 50 full-time detectives and a multi-million dollar computer system to crack the case. They have served at least two search warrants, but as of this morning, the killer remains unidentified. And Cindy Smith's disappearance was the last one in this area three years ago. John Sandifer for NBC News in Seattle. October 31st, 1983. Paige and Tina stood under the motel awning to hide from the rain. It seemed to always rain in Seattle. Paige didn't want to look for John's tonight, but Tina was insistent. Her logic was that with it being Halloween, the kids would be out of their dad's hair. After the rain broke, the two started walking down the 141st. As they walked, Paige felt like going back to the motel, but they needed $25 for the motel, maybe a little extra for the food. The two were saving money by eating cheap, only spending what they had to. 
When Tina found out she was pregnant, she immediately quit the drugs. They'd been saving money since. Paige wasn't sure what she would do once they got Tina on her feet, but it was the right thing to do. A woman should care for her baby. A truck pulled up, breaking Paige's thoughts. She couldn't quite make the color out. They discussed money straight away, then Paige got in, and they were off. When Paige returned, she noticed that Tina wasn't there. Probably found a John. Now that the rain had stopped, you could see your breath. Back at the motel, Paige showered. Drying off, she kept expecting to hear the gravel crunch as Tina showed up. She never came. Two days later, Paige is working the same strip of highway. She's worried about Tina but afraid to go to the police. A pickup truck pulls up. It's a man with brown hair and a mustache in his 30s. He's wearing a plaid shirt and a baseball cap. Unassuming face. Hey, weren't you standing with that tall blonde the other day? The hairs on the back of Paige's neck stand on end. She nods her head no. A moment passes. Only the hum of the truck breaks the ambiance. A strange tension can be felt in the air. The man asks how much. Paige can feel something off about this guy. For a moment, something shifts in the man's face. Something angry, something enraged shows for a moment. Then he pleads and shows her money in his wallet. The man is offering too much. It doesn't make sense. Why is he this desperate? Come on, it will just be a quick ride. Paige relents a little. Okay, but it will have to be in her motel room. No, he shakes his head. It can't be like that. Why? She asks him. Why can't it be at the motel? He wants a date in the back of his truck. The man is shaking. No, she tells him. And she's firm. The man's rubbing his temples now. Somehow he doesn't look like the man she saw at first. Something's changed here, Paige thinks to herself, as the man lays his forehead on his steering wheel. He's pleading with her. I have a son. Paige shakes her head no again. Fucking whore. For a moment, Paige is sure the man is going to dive out of his truck, that this would be it. But the man slams his hands on the wheel, clutching the wheel hard and gritting his teeth, then speeds off. Paige walks back to the motel. Her heels are loud on the wet pavement. She didn't need to trick tonight. There's always tomorrow. And besides, there was a savings fund that didn't need saving anymore. Paige would be eating alone tonight. There's a profile of these people, and that is that they are male, almost exclusively white males in their late 20s, between the age range of 25 to 35. Uh... They are highly intelligent uh, with IQs in the 135, 140, and even above range. They are people who have had an obsession with sex and violence since the time they were children. And uh, as five-year-olds were known to be cutting off the heads and hands of their sister's dolls, and at age 10, cutting up the family cat or dog, and uh, then in adulthood, actually acting out these fantasies they have that involve a combination of sex and aggression. Well, why do they seem to, to go dormant there for a while between these uh, bizarre childhood uh, behaviors and the murderers themselves? They seem to live almost normal lives, superficially at least. Well, there's both a period in maturation in terms of, uh, of adolescence where for... Uh, who knows, developmental reasons, they aren't quite ready to go out and, and act out the fantasies that, that they've been having, although that period of 
development is a time of extremely active fantasy uh, about such activities. Uh, once they start killing, there are dormant periods in between the killings that may range from a few weeks to a few months. And what they're doing during that period of time is that they haven't lost interest in the subject, but rather they're reliving the past murder uh, in great detail. Some go back to the murder site. Uh, some have taken pictures, Polaroid pictures of the victim, and uh, look at those and relive the experience. And that seems to keep them going for a matter of a couple of weeks. And then they start planning the next one, and that keeps them going for the next couple of weeks. These are the most carefully planned out, premeditated types of murder of all the kinds of murder that occur in this country. Mr. Keppel, now that you know something about these serial murderers, does it help you find the next one, or does it just uh, illustrate why it's so hard to find and stop these people? One of the problems is that uh, police departments don't recognize soon enough the serial. And we've been guilty for years of not communicating to each other well enough. And by virtue of the fact these are traveling killers, they're very mobile, and our transportation systems are very open and fast, they can get from one jurisdiction to another very quickly and pretty soon be out of sight by the time we find the body and have any following leads to take care of. You know, I think you may have just answered my next question. Why it, does it seem to be an American phenomenon? Is it because of our interstate highway system? Well, it's very much... Yes, go ahead. Very much connected to the automobile. I think certainly the increased frequency of these kinds of killings in the United States versus Europe and elsewhere uh, has to do in part with the, uh, with the car. Uh, most other murders that are committed in this country and elsewhere occur in homes or apartments or on the streets or in bars or places like that. But uh, this kind of killing is unusual in that it's almost always related uh, to transportation, to travel by automobile. And the victims are either picked up hitchhiking or there are women who are stranded on a highway in a stalled car. The moral of, of I guess, that information is that uh, one shouldn't hitchhike or if your car is stalled, you should keep the doors locked and flash your lights until a police officer comes. Uh, Mr. Keppel, does, uh, your Green River killer doesn't quite match that profile, does he? Well, he's picking on a different element of the population and that appears to be at this point mostly prostitutes and basically uh, it's all in the control that the serial killer can obtain over the victim and prostitution makes it that much easier as does hitchhiking. Is there another explanation Dr. Lundy for why this Green River guy might be uh, picking prostitutes? Well the motive in most of these killings is in fact sexual uh, there's a mixture of sexual and aggressive impulses in these people from an early age, as I said, and for uh, various reasons, a number of them grow up being unable to experience any kind of sexual pleasure without some kind of violent activity associated with it. And they have a specific kind of victim in mind. It's not a senseless kind of killing or random series of victims like the recent massacre uh, in San Ysidro, California. Rather, uh, there is a, usually a, a woman of a certain age and sometimes even uh, a particular hair color and hairstyle who represents somebody from this person's past, uh, often it's a mother, and, uh, and in fact often the mothers have been prostitutes of these killers and uh, as children they saw their mothers uh, in action. And, Dr. Um, Lundy, we've got to leave it there. Um, it's a disturbing profile, but I suppose the more we know, the better. Good luck, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you.
Gary Ridgway found he loved the media attention. He savored it. The papers and television had initially undersold the murders, which he wasn't fond of. But eventually they started to figure things out. Boy Scouts might wander upon an old cluster or a hiker might trip over a sun-washed femur. The numbers were climbing and Gary felt that the news media were enjoying it as much, if not more. Gary saw in the news that law enforcement had been speaking with Ted Bundy. Keep in mind that law enforcement, journalists, and the general public were still wrapping their minds around serial killers. In fact, just to give you an idea, a New York Times article published many years from this time period would have this to note. The sheriff, who spent three days interviewing Mr. Ridgway alone, said he quickly realized that serial killers have a lot in common. Whether they kill prostitutes, as Mr. Ridgway and Jack the Ripper did, young boys, as John Wayne Gacy did, or young women, as Mr. Bundy did. A New York Times story at the time said, Both Mr. Bundy, who was put to death for the murder of three women and had confessed to killing at least 16 others, and Mr. Ridgway were sexual predators who killed during or after sexually assaulting or having sex with their victims. When it came to evading law enforcement, Gary Ridgway had his tricks. Sometimes he'd intentionally contaminate the crime scene with scraps of garbage he found in public trash cans, gum that wasn't his, and cigarette butts from restaurant ashtrays, all to throw the investigators off his scent. On occasion, he'd dump the body in one place, leave it to decompose for a time, then place the body in another location. This to create a trail that didn't actually exist. Gary knew people thought of him as stupid his whole life. He felt a sense of pride for outsmarting law enforcement for so long. He wasn't a lawyer. He was an outdoorsman who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He felt that some of the bodies would never be found. That they'd be lost to time like the dinosaurs. In 1984, Gary Ridgway sent his only correspondence with law enforcement. It read, What you need to know about the Green River Man, don't throw away. 1. First one broken and dislocate arm, why? 2. One placed in river had stone in the vagina. 3. Why's one in the river, some above ground? 4. Insurance, who's got it? 5. Who or what's to gain by their deaths? 6. Truck is out of state, father had painted. 7. Some had fingernails cut off. 8. He had sex after they dead. He smokes. 9. He chews gum. 10. First one blackmailed him. 11. You work me or nobody. 12. Think he changed his MO. Businessman or salesman. 13. Canon note reservation. 14. Man seen big luggage out of motel was heavy needed help. 15. Where's close? Some rings and misc. 16. Out of state cop. 17. Don't kill in our area. Looking outside. 18. One had old scarf. 19. Mom had red wine Lombroso, some fish, and dumped there. 20. Any drugs or selling? 21. Who found head and where is rest? 22. When did they die day or night? 23. What turn there? Mouth Christine for trick. 24. Why take some clothes and leave rest? 25. The killer. Where's at? Least one ring. 26. Real estimate is one man. 27. Long haul truck driver, last seen with one. 28. Some had rope marks on neck and hands. 29. This one is unintelligible. 30. All strangled, but some with different methods. 31. Black and worked for Metro. 32. Most had pimps belittling them. 33. Escort and modeling forced them off fear of death. 34. Maybe pimp hate. Get back at them. Who finds the bones? What are they there for? 35. Man with gun or knife. 36. Someone paid to kill one other. 
37. Kill whore? That's what they are. 38. Any dead suffer than rest? 39. It could mean Portland, some work there. 40. What kind of man is this? There was a book left at Denny's. I got this out of it. It belongs to a cop. Call me Fred. A prolific criminal profiler at the time told investigators that the letter wasn't sent by the real serial killer, and it went ignored for decades. When later called out on this mistake, the profiler said he couldn't recall why he felt it wasn't Gary. In an attempt to stop the Green River Killer, the King County Sheriff's Office started up the Green River Task Force. Thousands of man-hours would be employed to stop Gary Ridgway. Yes, even Ted Bundy was tapped as a resource. But how useful Ted Bundy was has been over-exaggerated through the years. The only useful information Bundy gave investigators was that Gary was likely returning to the bodies to engage in necrophilia. At some point, the task force placed surveillance vehicles at old dump sites. News helicopters recorded the act and made it that evening's big news story. There's a chance Gary was tipped off by this. This is the story of a murder mystery. Not just one murder, not two or three. This mystery concerns the violent death of some 80 women. They were killed one at a time. No one knows why, no one knows by whom. But there is reason to suspect that they were murdered by the same person. Some of them are known as the Green River Murders. But what about the rest? NBC's Bob Jamison has more. The Southern California sun, which brings beauty and brightness to San Diego, is in stark contrast to the growing darkness along the city's El Cajon Boulevard. Someone is killing the women whose lives are spent on that street. Prostitutes, drug users. When 20-year-old Melissa Sandoval's body was discovered in May, dumped in a rural area, the string of unsolved murders of women in San Diego County reached 25. In your 18 years with this department, have you seen anything like this? Absolutely not, no. The killings have fallen into a pattern. Many of the victims had ties to El Cajon Boulevard. Most were prostitutes. Most were strangled. The victims were nude or partially nude. The bodies were dumped in clusters in rural areas near highways. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It is a pattern chillingly familiar to other police on the West Coast. This is the Green River near Seattle, which gave its name to the worst string of unsolved serial murders in U.S. history. Female victims, most prostitutes, all believed killed by the same person. The five bodies of women pulled from the Green River starting in 1982 were only the beginning. With growing disbelief, police in Seattle's King County eventually tied the murders of 41 women and the disappearance of seven others to the same killer, a serial killer they have never caught. The hardest thing to, to come to grips with for a lot of us is that this could have occurred here in our community uh, for such a period of time and and as we sit here, that person responsible is, is yet to be brought to justice. And may be responsible for a lot more murders. Certainly, if someone could kill 40 people, you could kill 60. And, and I just don't know where it ends. What also haunts Evans and other investigators is that they don't know where it began. In the past six years, a string of murders, all strikingly similar, all unsolved, began in Vancouver in Canada and moved steadily south. Spokane, 
Seattle, Portland, and now San Diego. Almost 80 women. For Tom Guillen and Carlton Smith, who have followed the case in Seattle since almost the first Green River killing, the West Coast murders are connected. It's hard to imagine how a, two killers working independently can make them look the same. There's just too much there. Police in both cities privately conclude that the serial killer who murdered in Seattle is responsible for the Portland slayings and at least some of the 25 killings in San Diego. And the victims themselves may be helping their murderer avoid capture. Their lifestyle, their personalities, the people they associate with are into illegal activities or on the fringe of illegal activities. That is frustrated to some extent our attempt, if you will, to get information. If these victims were a middle-class housewife, the suburban neighbor, if you will, it would be a wholly different type of case. What's it going to take to solve this crime? One lucky break. One individual out there that knows in their heart who's done this and has been reluctant to come forward. This suspect, this individual, has had a remarkable string of luck, and sooner or later, uh, it's going to run out. And Evans hopes that the killer's luck, like that of the women he's murdered recently, runs out on El Cajon Boulevard before he starts killing somewhere else. Bob Jamison, NBC News, San Diego. Gary's final kill count could have reached numbers impossible to imagine. But then he met Judith in 1985. In 1984, Judith divorced her husband, who came out to her as bisexual. She could have handled this if he hadn't suggested bringing other men into their bed. Judith had turned 40 and viewed herself as unattractive. It was a blow to her self-esteem. Gary and Judith first met at the parents without partners meetings that Gary has grown so fond of over the years. The two didn't initially connect. They did orbit each other at various meetings. Judith wasn't the type to jump into relationships with men. She wasn't interested in one-night stands. When they did connect, the process was slow. Gary worked the swing shift. Because of this, their dates would be at McDonald's for a late lunch. Eventually, after three months of dating, Judith started going home with Gary. When she first started visiting, Judith noticed that Gary didn't have carpet. She found this strange could see frayed bits where it had been torn off the floor. One day, Judith would find out that Gary murdered a woman on the floor and the victim's blood spilled onto the carpet. Luckily for Gary, that day was a long way off. Two teens from the neighborhood helped Gary dispose of the carpet at the dump. He paid the two well, told them he spilled red paint on the carpet. The teens didn't care. They likely only saw the dollar amount. Greed can blind most from even the darkest acts. Judith loved Gary from even early in the relationship. He was gentle, kind, patient. Gary took her on camping trips. They'd lay out and watch the stars. Judith, the little spoon, held in his strong arms. Gary didn't say a lot. The quiet was nice. Besides, to Judith, Gary pulling her in close on a cold night under the starlit sky meant more to her than words. The correlation between Gary's relationship and eventual marriage to Judith and the near-complete halt of the murders cannot be ignored. The killings came to a near-total stop. Judith and Gary had what many would consider an ideal relationship. It was true love, 
they shared similar hobbies. They were ravenous yard and garage sale attendees. They'd go digging in the local dump to find items to repair and sell. The Ridgeway yard sale a common occurrence for the neighborhood. Their differences didn't get in the way. Judith realized that Gary wasn't sentimental enough to buy her jewelry. She had her jewelry from her previous marriage melted down to make new rings. She wasn't a drinker, but Gary had a couple of beers a night, sometimes a box of cheap wine. Judith was happy to be a part of Matthew's life when he visited. Gary loved her for that. His son had his own room in the house. He attended their vacations. And there were plenty of vacations. A quick internet search will reveal Gary happily standing holding two dogs and wearing a Florida graphic t-shirt and a stupid grin. Gary still didn't have friends. He didn't need them. Judith was enough for him. Judith didn't watch or read the news, so she wasn't aware there was a Green River killer. She certainly wasn't aware that in the years leading up to their relationship, Gary was arrested and questioned on several occasions for soliciting. One month after they were together, the Green River Task Force brought Gary in for questioning. A complaint was filed after a sex worker told police that he choked her. Gary admitted to doing so in questioning, but told police that the sex worker tried to bite his penis. The task force asked Gary to take a polygraph test. Gary complied and passed with ease. It should be noted here that these tests are wildly unpredictable. Sociopaths tend to pass them easily. One thing Judith appreciates is that Gary is a hard worker. He works overtime without complaining and has never came into work late. Sometimes Gary is the butt of jokes at work. This due to his occasional work-related errors, his tendency to read the Bible in the break room. But Gary was untouchable at work. He's an old head at the company. It's rare in the workforce to find such a committed worker. Gary often hands his checks to Judith to budget. Sometimes Gary asks for extra money and she never questions why. On one occasion, Judith's daughter, her daughter's boyfriend, and their kids need a place to stay. Judith asks Gary if they can move in with them until they got back on their feet. Gary agrees. Judith realizes that not many men would allow this. Gary and Judith eventually get married in 1988. Knowing Gary wasn't sentimental, Judith popped the question. They marry in their neighbor's front yard. Afterwards, Judith began working and they purchase a larger house. In 1987, Gary was issued a search warrant. They searched his house, his work locker, and his three vehicles. The task force brought Gary in and collected DNA samples. Unbelievably, these samples were not tested for over a decade. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.